censors and we are uh, live in the second half of the program we call it overtime and we've got a good overtime lined up for you we're going to be talking to angela dawson the mississippi community coordinator from jobs to move america to talk about their recent report about uh jobs in mississippi and alabama the report is titled Job quality and community well-being in Mississippi and Alabama's manufacturing facilities. It's going to be a great conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Looking forward to that one. Yep. We got, uh, we got some labor stories, of course. Some more labor stories to report. Of course. Of course. Before we do that, though, uh, I wanted to respond to this piece in 1819 News. Um, that, oh, that made a that made a very you know it made a very interesting argument that I had never considered before. I had never considered this argument before, so I'm going to put well, it to I, you. Well, I got to say, 1819 News will do that to you sometimes. Yeah. They will come out with something that you've just never really considered before. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, you know, it's worth considering, and so let's consider it. Uh, but the preamble to that is that uh, Kay Ivey, in her State of the State address, Kay Ivey is the governor of Alabama, she said that she wants teachers in Alabama to have the highest starting salary in the Southeast. And this, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I like that a lot. Very laudable. Very laudable, uh, very laudable words. Um, and so to that end, she is proposing a 2% pay increase this session. Wow. I hope she didn't bake, break the bank on that one. <laughs> so uh, 2% pay increase. What is inflation now? Inflation is no longer 10%. Inflation is what? 6%. So that's a 4% pay cut. So she's going to have to do some work in uh upcoming legislative sessions well if she wants to meet that goal she could also hope that the rest of the south gets worse uh that's also an option that's another that is another option. see you, you know you got to think about the different yeah. approaches you can take to this yes they're you're right you're right there don't underestimate that that's another option <laughs> although arkansas just passed a huge bill to make the minimum starting salary fifty thousand dollars for teachers that's progress. So we got to beat Arkansas if we're going to do that. Um, so, you know, two Wouldn't it be nice to beat Arkansas in education <laughs> you know, salaries Arkansas. and not just in yeah. football? That yeah. would be lovely. Yep, yep, yep. And so, you know, the the reasoning for this is to, you know, improve school performance and also attack the teacher shortage, which just attacking the teacher shortage is going to improve school performance because, you know, just logically – 
if you fill the positions with qualified professionals who are there every day, right? With qualified, you know, uh, performance would improve. Just you know, that I don't even know how you could possibly dispute that. You know, it's it's going to be easier for you know for for teachers to teach if if they teach an appropriate amount of students. That just seems to be obvious. But Justin Bogey at 1819 News, attempts to throw cold water on the idea that this would improve school performance. And this is the novel argument that that we're going to consider here. And so he says that, um, you know, look, people want to improve school performance. We should improve school performance. But is this really the way to do that? And, you know, maybe we can look to historical... Uh, you know, we can we can analyze the past, which this is something that we're in favor of. You're a history teacher. And so he says... Let's analyze the past to see if that can give us any indication about whether or not improving teacher pay will improve school performance. Okay, so we're starting off with, you know, analyzing the past to determine our path forward. This is this is something that we support. And so he says uh, Alabama's minimum teacher salaries have increased, get this, by over 45 percent. Hmm. Really? Yeah. Since the 1999 oh, oh. 2000 school year. <laughs> I have also grown a bit <laughs> since then. Um, a little. Is there anything else that you can think of that has also grown by a significant portion since 1999? <laughs> well, I mean, surely... <laughs> Surely our bills haven't gotten higher since then, right? Oh, what about housing and oh, education? Uh, I wonder if higher education. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So it's so teacher salaries have increased by forty five percent, but other, you're telling me, Adam, that the price of other things has increased as well. I do believe that is the okay. case. Yes, interesting. Um, I, I believe that's. I, I know I don't get my talking points from the Alabama Policy Institute, mm. but. That's my understanding is that, yes, the cost of living has, in fact, gone mm. up. OK. Hmm. Well, let's let's just keep reading. Maybe he addresses this. We've only read one sentence, right? We've only read one. <laughs> sentence, so maybe, you know, maybe there's something else he says. So Alabama's minimum teacher salaries have increased by over 45 percent since 1999. The, the states and I assume that's how he would want you to read it. The state's performance in the National Assessment of Education Progress has shown little to no improvement, Adam, over that same period. Uh, also, despite the 12.5% raises since 2018, Alabama's NAEP scores have only improved by one point in one category from, 19, uh, from 2019 to 2022. Um, so he doesn't really address... that's fascinating he doesn't and and so we've only read one paragraph but i have read the entire article and i can assure you that he actually he doesn't address the rising costs of anything else in his article um and so let's do that let's do that we're going to help him out here we're going to help out our friend uh justin bogey and so i followed his you know because he links when he says he links to something when he says Alabama's minimum teacher salaries have increased by over 45% since the 1999-2000 school year. He links to something showing showing teacher salaries in, like, you know, <laughs> the 20th century. 
And in 2000, according to his link, and, you know, I don't know, I haven't, uh, presumably this is true. In 2000, Alabama teachers started at $29,790, according to his source. And uh, in 2023 dollars, that would be $52,044. Wow. Wowza. So in 2000, Alabama teachers started making the equivalent of $52,000. That's actually kind of fascinating. That's actually kind of fascinating. That is more than I made coming out of college as a STEM major working for the federal government. In fact, I only passed that $52,000 within the past year or so. And I've been out of college for four years? Four, jeez. Wait, so are, are you telling me that, at least in terms of salary, teachers may have had it better in Alabama 20 years ago? Well, yeah, well, let's let's actually see. So, you know, in 2000, Alabama teachers started at $29,790. We'll just call it $30,000. Just easier to say. And in 2023 dollars, the equivalent would be $52,044. And so, that's a pretty big increase. Uh, but, uh, uh, what... Adam, do you know off the top of your head how much Alabama teachers start at today? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Okay, we so, finally got it above 40K a few years mm, ago. Yeah. Um, it is uh, $43,000. Okay. Hmm. Whoopsie. So, <laughs> so, in actual real dollars, the historical analysis would show you that teachers in Alabama have taken a 20% pay cut since 1999 that is remarkable wow wow that's something i mean that that is not what he wanted you to get from that opinion piece Mm-mm. Mm-mm. and and you know that oh. is that it is actually fascinating that despite taking a 20 percent pay cut Teachers have been able to keep scores relatively, relatively, you know, flat. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the thing. You're talking about quite a lot has changed over the past 20 years in public education in over Alabama. Over the past 23 years. <laughs> right. 23 years. A lot has changed, you know, and you go back 15 years or so and you have the Great Recession. Yeah. And in the aftermath of the Great Recession, you had some of the steepest cuts to education. Uh, in the country happened right here in Alabama. Uh, and oh, what happened in 2010? You you know what happened in 2010, Jacob? I don't. Tell me what happened in 2010. Uh, turns out the GOP took a supermajority of the legislature, Ooh, along with the judicial branch, along oh. with the executive branch, and so they've had total control since 2010's election, mm. right? And uh, immediately after getting into office in this big Republican wave, they unleashed a wave of reform mm. you know they love to say it's reform they they had education reform uh where they weakened tenure rights where they uh created a second tier in the pension system where they uh unleashed charter schools and they established private school scholarships where they established the failing school list mm. uh and on and on and on it was several years back to back to back of just you know hit after hit after hit uh, 
And so when you're looking at a period of 23 years, it's worth noting that, you know, you go back 15 of those years. That's a huge period of austerity followed by uh, right wing education reform. That's actually fascinating. So you're telling me, Adam, that um, if we uh, look back at history on a different issue, we can actually see a lot of right-wing policies being enacted and similarly scores not improving. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the thing, right? If this is all about, well, we have to see the scores improve, um, demonstrate the growth, demonstrate the progress that you've made since 2010. Interesting. These have been, these, these, these are Alabama schools under Republican rules, right? Not right. AEA rules, not the liberal teachers lobby rules. These are these are Alabama schools under y'all setup. Y'all gutted the pension. Y'all manufactured a teacher shortage. Y'all cut the budgets. Y'all undid the progress that was made with programs like Alabama Reading Initiative. Okay? And then and then you want to gripe about scores. And it just, it really, really bothers me, the, the obsession with the scores. To me, you know, you, all right, you've got me on a tangent here, but the, uh, <laughs> it, it's one of those problems to me when you try to approach public education from a capitalist mindset because they want to be able to quantify and measure the education of a child like it's any other commodity. Right. But educating a child is a hell of a lot different than manufacturing tennis shoes. Common sense should dictate that you understand that, but, you know, as the old saying goes, common sense ain't always so common. So corporate reformers demand data because they demand accountability, or at least that's what they call it, accountability. But truthfully, education is a complex, holistic process. You can't just reduce it to a number on a spreadsheet, not legitimately. I mean, you can try, but that's not a legitimate thing. And, you know, the obsession with the test Let's talk about the test. It doesn't matter which test you're talking about, really, at the end of the day. Uh, NAEP or ACT or uh, any of the others that are out there, there's bias in the test. There's misalignment in the test, meaning the test doesn't always test what the teachers are required to teach. The standards in the state of Alabama course of study, that's, they're not always aligned, right? So there's a factor. Uh, there's myriad situational factors that affect the results the day of. Some tests are better than others. Some are worse. You can dig into the data and, you know, you could you could pinpoint growth or you can pinpoint disparities and perhaps find more utility out of it, certainly more utility than this joker is putting out. Uh, they can tell you who's good at taking standardized tests. They're really good at that, which, as you can imagine, reshapes the curriculum around test prep but what these tests are best at is reflecting socioeconomic factors of the students that take them. You show me a so-called failing school, and I'm going to show you a school with a lot of poor kids. You show me a blue ribbon school, I'm going to show you a school with a lot of affluent kids. There is a sea of research at this point spanning decades that is very clear that socioeconomic factors outside of school largely shapes the academic outcomes inside the school. Okay? that's. That's not me making this up. This is not, uh, you know, some teachers union talking point. This is just reality. And 
I get that that's unfortunate for some people's talking points, but that's the that's the harsh reality. Right. That many, including some in education, honestly, don't even want to admit that as long as Alabama is at or near the bottom of every single quality of life metric, Alabama schools are never going to be at or near the top. You can't separate what's happening inside the schools from what's happening inside the communities those schools serve. So unless Alabama is going to do something about the many layers of crisis that plagues our people, from poverty and underemployment to mass incarceration and lack of health care, unless Alabama is going to do something about that, Alabama is not serious about education. I mean, and it's not lost on me that the very same folks who attack our public schools and, and decry our public schools being ranked so low are the very same folks responsible for Alabama ranking so low in literally every other category. All right. So I'll get off my soapbox now, but you know, you start bringing up test scores and education that, that gets me riled up. And And I know we have Angela, we have Angela on the line waiting very patiently for me to wrap up my, uh, (laughs) my education rant. So yeah, well let's go ahead and go to Angela then. Um, Angela Dawson is the uh, Mississippi Community Coordinator for uh, Jobs to Move America. They put out a report uh, last month titled Job Quality and Community Well-Being in Mississippi and Alabama's Manufacturing Facilities, and Angela is here to talk to us about it. So, Angela, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Thank you guys for having me. Um, I really enjoyed listening to you guys talk about um, education because the same thing that goes on in Alabama pretty much goes on in Mm. uh, Mississippi. Um, A lot of those things uh, kind of slide back and forth across the border as we fight for, you know, last place in a lot Mm -hmm. of these uh, instances. So no problem, you know, being a little bit late with it. Um, well, appreciate it. Well, I I want to, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, like I was saying, um, I could give like an executive summary of uh what the report found, um, and then give a little bit of I could start off with a little bit of background uh for the research as well. Sure. Um, Dr. Emily Erickson at um Alabama A and M. Uh, came in. She was uh, over. Um, she was a professor of urban development, and noticed the the peppering of different plants around um, Alabama, and how manufacturing was, you know, kind of increasing in Alabama, and it's increasing in the South. Period. Um, we even go so far as to say, you know, the South is the new Rust Belt because uh, companies are coming here to take advantage of the incentives. And the revolving door of workers that they can, you know, have to come in with these jobs. And so she wanted to see, try to find, do research to find out why, if all of these jobs were in Alabama and Mississippi, why are things still so bad, you know, as far as um, life-wise for the workers? Um, Why are people still uh, living in poverty if all of these jobs are coming to the South? And so with a grant from uh, W.K. Kellogg, uh, they were able to get uh, a few more uh, academics together 
come up with the survey. Um, at the time when I came in to working with uh, JMA, I was hired as a consultant to oversee the student interns who were uh, getting the getting the survey out into the communities and to workers. And then we had to also figure out a way to organize online because as you well know, like the pandemic um, popped off here. And so we couldn't do a lot of face-to-face -face things. And, um, and so they were able, they did a really good job with that. We were able to get 1300 um, manufacturing uh, surveys done in the, in the communities. There are four uh, companies in Mississippi and four in Alabama. And overall, we found that um, the quality of the manufacturing jobs is low um, across many dimensions. And the dimensions that we looked at were uh, paying benefits, uh, terms of employment, work-life balance, health and safety, and representation and voice. And so they were relatively low across those uh, six dimensions that we looked at. Um, the average pay was decent. Um, there were jobs that, you know, they had more permanent positions, but um, they also utilized um, hiring temp workers in order to uh, not have to pay for maybe uh, health benefits or things like that, or it might be easier um, to fire someone that's uh, temporary. And they also have like tiered, um, tiered payment. So it's like you have three people doing the same job working for you know a contractor, the main company or a temp agency, and they're making three, uh, they're at three different levels of pay. Um, so that we saw that um, a lot in the Mississippi, um, in the Mississippi manufacturers and a couple of the uh, Alabama ones. And, but the, the thing that stood out to me the most was how, how many workers express pride in having those jobs because they do pay more than the other jobs in the area and they were you know happy to have the jobs because it helps to um maybe get us off the bottom when it comes to things like poverty and education right. um so i'm gonna you know pause there to see if you guys have any questions yeah well i think that that is a you know the the fact that the pay is um relatively high you know, not high per se, but but that's one of the ways that they get these folks to um, uh, to accept all of the other issues. You know, the racial disparities, not being respected on the job. Um, you know, no, very little, uh, very very little ability for for upward mobility. Uh, you know, things like this. Yeah. If you're if you pay somebody. 14 15 an hour to uh where the only other jobs in the area are 9 or 10 even though 14 or 15 is not a lot it's more than these folks have have seen before right and so that's that's kind of a, a right. powerful that's a powerful thing uh, yes it is um poverty is is the heck of a motivator um and so and that's when you have people not willing to come out and say anything um, if they don't feel safe on the job. They're not willing to feel safe that, you know, you find out on your lunch break that you're working overtime and then you have to try to scramble to figure out who's going to do school pickup and things of that, things of that nature. So uh, and you're less likely to say anything about it because you really don't want to go back to, you don't want to go to zero dollars an hour. Right. Um, 
And so, and you don't want to go to the 725. So if you make it a 15, you just kind of put your head down and, and move forward. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I think this survey was so great because it also asked the community as a whole, and you know, what do you see um, that's going on in these manufacturing? Do you have uh, relatives or people that you love working in these uh, manufacturing plants and what are they saying? And um, how do you feel about the fact that two of the poorest states in the country are giving away billions of dollars in tax incentives to get these companies to come south and then pretty much, you know, kind of a little take take advantage of the people that are working there. I like to say, you know, at, by the end of it, we're funding our own exploitation because that's our tax dollars going to get these companies here. And we need to ensure that someone is holding them accountable. We need to ensure that someone is making sure that they're not taking advantage of the people in our states. And and we want to get to we want to get to some of this uh, the the idea of of the strings that are attached or you know I think crucially are are often not attached um, and we want to get to that but let's let's dwell on some of the exploitation some more do you have any um, uh, what is the what type of data do we have on safety and um, yeah, what kind of data do we have on safety in these facilities across Alabama and Mississippi? Um, the report was able to show that there are um, there were significant uh, racial wage gaps and also uh, between uh, women and men. Um, there are high rates of, in, of injury in the reports and um, racial hostility, sexual harassment, in those type of environments. So even that would keep you from, fear of retaliation would keep you from saying things like, I don't feel safe doing this job. But there are high rates of uh, serious injury in these manufacturing companies. And then they kind of, um, people are put on leave and then, you know, they're just kind of quietly, you know, let go. Mm. Do we have, uh, what kind of, what kind of response rates or, uh, or what kind of responses or maybe, you know, public stories have, have y'all seen about instances of retaliation where, you know, workers see a problem and they try to talk about it. And then um, the company, you know, more or less kind of tells them to shut up. Um, quite frankly, there aren't uh, particular like stories in the re in the report because so far we've just been able to release the executive summary. Mm -hmm. And in order to maintain the integrity of the report, uh, we and JMA or anyone else, no one gets their hands on this report. So they can't say that it's, you know, it's tainted through a labor lens mm -hmm. because that's the last thing we need to happen. Um, we want people to be able to believe that this was an academic study and that um, we didn't have our hands on it. But there are like overall, like I said, people did not feel safe um, expressing anything about safety, if that makes sense. Um, and so there, I know from working with um, a, a former campaign uh, with UAW and uh, Nissan that there were people that would get injured because of things like manholes being, you know, uncovered, right. um, 
doing the same repetitive jobs over and over where they're supposed to, you know, rotate and all that, you know, wears people out. Um, and so there, there are certain issues and, and no, they don't have to go out of their way to fix them either because really the, the leaders and the people who hold the purse strings are on their side. So let's talk about the purse strings. How much uh, do you have an idea about how much money these folks are, you know, these companies are getting from uh, the uh, from tax dollars uh, and subsidies and, and grants and, and all these types of things from Alabama and Mississippi? Well, um, we know uh, overall that since the mid 90s, uh, about $10 billion of taxpayer money has come from Alabama and Mississippi to get companies to come south. Um, but when looking for on the, the policy side of it and the accountability side of it, um, Mississippi and Alabama are not very transparent with everything that goes on. And, you know, there are like things that prevent people from knowing exactly what's going on. So that in of itself lets you know that there's something, right. um, that's not quite right. If, if, if they're going to such lengths to to hide it from public view. So um, we're hoping, we are making requests to see how much money actually, how many incentives, um, were there any deals saying that a manufacturer would, would have to stay in a state for a certain amount of time, or they will forfeit the rest of their incentives. Uh, we would like to know all of those things and we're in the process of trying to get that information, but it's, it's kind of difficult because um, they're not very transparent. They're very good at, you know, keeping things behind closed doors. Right. right. Difficult by design. Yeah. What kind of strings are usually attached yes. to yes. these these dollars from from the public? Well, you know, there are um, since both states are like right to work. Uh, that's one of the perfect uh, things for a manufacturing company to come in. And, and some of the incentive is that, you know, a nod and a wink that, yeah, we're going to keep it that way. So you don't have to worry about uh, things of that nature. We will keep people in a particular pocket so that you don't have to worry about no anyone coming on later, you know, coming along later saying, well, yeah, we want, you know, this, this, and that. And so, um, and I think that's one of the things that also the, the revolving uh, door of, of employers, employees, I mean, that can come in. If you were to take, any manufacturing plant in Mississippi or Alabama, you fired everyone in that plant. You could start up again with a fresh new uh, crop of workers the next day. Mm. And that's another, you have plenty of people that are always going to be willing to come in and fill these positions because they make more money than the other uh, jobs around them. And they're going to do that in spite of there's no, you know, if you're African-American or a woman or come from any marginalized community of community of color, there's no upward mobility there, even if there's safety issues there, even if there are pay disparities there. Um, and you are, you know, discouraged from speaking up for yourself and asking for better rights. In spite of all those things, uh, Mississippi and Alabama will constantly produce a workforce for these companies. They'll never have to worry about um, people actually coming in to work, and I think too that's um, that's part of the the allure, and the fact that you know the companies pretty much can um, can do what they want as long as they stay, and as long as it's something that 
can be touted as a new job by whatever administration is, is in office. Have you, in the course of your research and working with Jobs to Move America and, and in this report, have you seen a single instance of Alabama or Mississippi clawing back uh, subsidies from manufacturers that they've given them to? Absolutely not. Mm. I've I've not seen it. Um, because, it's, I mean, why would they go? Why would, I mean, because a lot of them may be contingent on them staying a certain amount of time, but why would they go if no one is, is really checking, you know, what they're doing? No one is really checking the company. And like I said, it's just, it's another feather in the cap of whatever administration is running either one of these states at the time to say, well, see, I brought these jobs here. But what we're fighting for at JMA is that, yes, we want these jobs. We want people to be able to uh, work themselves out of poverty if they can, but it doesn't need to be impeded by unjustness. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of a personal thing uh, for me because I have family members that work in, you know, in manufacturing plants around the state. And I do want them to be able to have access to those jobs, but I don't want them to be hindered by those jobs at the same time. Right. Um, and so what we're working towards here is to ensure that they're good jobs. Are there, are we going to end up having a cancer alley around the areas where these manufacturers are in, you know, in decades in the future. Right. We want to ensure that they are disposing of things correctly. So if we want, you know, clean jobs or greener jobs. Um, we want the jobs to be able to offer retirement uh, for some people. A lot of people just have 401k. They don't get like the, the base retirement. And as you guys have stated uh, earlier with the link between poverty and education, if people are making more money, their children are going to better schools. They live in better neighborhoods. They have more money um, to pay into taxes to ensure that their infrastructures are standing, are able to stand alone. So a lot of this goes back to what, what's going on here. And so at uh, JMA, like I said, we're pushing for not just jobs, but good jobs. And if we're going to foot the bill for a lot of these jobs coming here, we all need to be um, cognizant of what's going on. We all need to pay attention to what's going on because these are, uh, as, as Mississippians and Alabamians, these are our tax dollars. So we deserve to know where they're going and how they're being used. And we need to ensure that they're not being used against us. Yeah. Because absolutely. then that's, that's counterintuitive. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, well, let's wrap up with um, with this. Talk to us about uh, Jobs to Move America more generally, um, you know, who y'all are, what kind of work you're doing, and maybe how folks can get involved if they're interested. Oh, um, great. Uh, Jobs to Move America is, we are a policy-based uh, think center, and we look at how money, government monies are spent. A lot of our work is in uh, transportation. So say, for instance, um, there's a plant in Anniston, Alabama, a new flyer. And what the work that JMA does um, is reflected perfectly in um, what just went down in, uh, in Anniston, Alabama. Um, 
they were able to get a community benefits agreement with New Flyer. Um, and that is a legally binding uh, contract that New Flyer now has with, um, with Alabama uh, Coalition for Community Benefits. Um, and they were able to establish um, workforce development programs, a debt clinic, and a path to management programs to ensure that people who are actually deserving of these jobs um, can go into management. And it's one of the first of its kind in the, um, in the South in terms of establishing um, that workforce development to ensure that people are ready to work. Um, we also um, fight for um, local hire so that people, when these people are coming, to, I mean, these companies are coming to the community the people that live in the community get a shot at getting those jobs as well. Right. Um, and also preparing them for that work. So they're ready uh, day one. And so that's basically what uh, JMA does. We want people to be able to say, okay, if you're gonna use our tax dollars for these specific things, these are the things we want to see happen. Um, and in doing the study and finding out uh, some of the things that are going on, like I said, we, there'll be a white paper published on this later on. We were able to see that although people are making better money, there are still things that need to be addressed inside of uh, mm. manufacturing plants. So um, we're y'all were in also the involved. Y'all were also involved in the uh, successful um, card check election in Kentucky at a new flyer plant. Is that right? Yes. Yes, they were. Yeah. Um, and we're still waiting on the waiting on the outcome of that. But um, but yes, I thought, I was, they won. I mean, just I thought that they being, won it at New Flyer in Kentucky. I'm sorry. They did. I'm sorry. OK, I'm sorry. I got confused with the other. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, Angela Dawson, Mississippi Community Coordinator for Jobs to Move America. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Angela. Uh. We had a couple more stories, Adam, and one that you reported on uh, last week was that uh, XFL workers are unionizing. Yeah, yeah, I was really happy to see that. Um, I love it when my sports passions and labor passions intersect, so that was really cool for me in particular. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, go to tvlr.fm. Check out the article, More Unionized Football on the Way. Uh, so this time of year, spring, it's after the Super Bowl, right? And there's that long stretch between the NFL Super Bowl and the beginning of football, uh, beginning of college football and professional football. And so you've seen a couple spring football leagues pop up in the last few years to kind of fill that gap. Um the USFL is opening its season next month. The XFL season has already been underway. Uh, I've been able to, you know, flip through and watch some of those games already. Uh, always love to have more football. Uh, and the really cool thing is that the XFL players are following in the footsteps of their brothers in the USFL, and they are forming a union. And back on March 10th, the United Steelworkers put out a press release letting folks know that these professional football players were organizing with USW. Uh, they filed a petition uh, for representation with Region 16 of the NLRB. Uh, roughly 475 professional athletes in the XFL are, are looking to be represented by USW. 
And of course, workers want to join unions to have a voice on the job over their working conditions, including compensation, benefits, safety, all the things we've discussed today and, and every week, right? The reasons why folks want to have a union. Workers want to be respected. They want to be treated fairly. Uh, and that spurs workers to join unions and to organize new ones. And professional athletes share those concerns. They share those desires with their fellow workers. And, you know, at the highest level, we, as we've discussed before, professional athletes are already unionized, right? The NFL has the NFLPA. Uh, same with the NHL, the Major League Baseball, the NBA. So given the potential benefits from unionization, the record high approval of unions, uh, unions uh, already being firmly established in the professional ranks of athletes, shouldn't be surprising to see this new campaign among the XFL players, but uh, I still was uh, very, you know, pleasantly surprised to see it, frankly, because you know, we hadn't heard anything out of XFL yet. We didn't know if that was going to happen. And uh, obviously they're under new management, but XFL originally came from Vince McMahon from the World Wrestling Entertainment, who is notoriously anti-union, right? So I didn't know if maybe some of that culture had kind of stayed with the XFL under new new ownership. Uh, but yeah, check out the article. I've got a couple quotes there. Uh from the USW International President, uh, who said, no matter whether it's a factory or football field, every worker deserves a voice on the job and in determining their own futures. I love that. Uh, and also went in to mention that we spoke with Ryan Cave from the USFL Players Association, United Football Players Association. Uh, we interviewed him on the Valley of Labor Report back in January to talk about the successful campaign uh, to organize these USFL players and the good contract they secured for their membership. Um, and so I spoke with Ryan for this article about the XFL as well. But just as a reminder, the USFL players had a 100% ratification vote of that contract. And uh, that's pretty significant, I think. Um Given the tumultuous history of spring football leagues, players were seeking contractual protections, uh, especially in regards to areas like workers' compensation, uh, equipment, safety, health care. Uh, given the physical nature of the sport, obviously very relevant. Uh, compensation, of course, is always a concern. Housing, definitely a primary concern for these football players who are away from their, their homes. Uh, so that was a three-year agreement they, they hammered out over in the USFL. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, the players know each other in these spring leagues. There's a lot of back and forth between XFL, USFL, NFL, Canadian Football League, etc. So these guys talk. They know each other. There were relationships already. And so those conversations and relationships really helped uh, lead to this XFL campaign. Um, so. Ryan shared that a lot of the players were familiar with player unions already. And after they saw the success in the USFL, that really, you know, furthered their interest. And they wanted to secure a union for themselves and a good contract for themselves in the XFL. Um, he said that uh, it's actually been a great fit with the USW. Uh, they are willing to expand into more sports, apparently. Uh, USW is, uh, they, they said they're just getting started when it comes to professional athletes. So uh, that's really cool. Um, and uh, Ryan Cave also pointed out that AFL-CIO has a sports council that was formed just last year. 
that's really that's uh, promising, I think, to see more collaboration within our unions, uh, collaborating with the professional athlete unions, right? Because they are some of the highest profile union members in our country. That's not nothing. That's something that we ought to really uh, keep in the forefront and something we, we have to take advantage of as a movement, frankly. So, um, you know, Americans and Alabamians love sports. We love football. And Cave reminded fans that while they watch and enjoy sports, they should remember these are professional workers who, like other workers, have rights in the workplace and a desire to protect those rights. So if you enjoy the product, you know, don't forget, there are folks laboring for this, often performing pretty dangerous labor. So uh, there are no specific calls to action at this time. I did ask. Uh, right now, uh, CAVE encouraged fans to show their love and support of the campaign on social media so you can share news of the Union Drive. Hey, share the article from TVLR. That would be a great way uh, to get the word out and let folks know you approve. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you know, tag the XFL, tag, uh, you know, XFL players that you may be familiar with. Let them know you, you support them. And, um, you know, there's definitely an Alabama connection there because there's a lot of folks in the XFL who played high school ball in Alabama and, and college ball in Alabama. Uh, the USFL even more so because they actually have the Birmingham Stallions. Um, so there will be six USFL games uh, in Birmingham this year. And, uh, you know, we're just, we're excited. Alabama's labor movement, I think we can all be excited to watch our union brothers play some football and cheer for their success, not just on the field, but at the ballot box and at the negotiating table. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the last thing that we wanted to talk about, um, which is, is, you know, probably one of the biggest things to happen in labor this month is absolutely and and something we'll probably need to dive into a lot more later (laughs) yeah yeah but we we just wanted to you know touch on it here is that it is all but certain that um that sean fain uh uaw reformer on the um members united slate uh backed by the uawd reform caucus He's all but certain to win the international presidency of the UAW. Um, I say all but certain because all the votes are not counted yet, but he has a 500-vote lead with only 600 votes to be counted. So it would be super wacky if he did not win. And he is, you know, he's all but declared victory. Um, He said, you know, let's get all all these votes counted and and let's, you know, uh, move forward. Um, so, you know, huge, huge deal in the UAW. Nearly 80 years of top-down one-party rule has come to an end. That is significant. Yeah, uh, Labor Notes has a good story on it, um, by Luis Leon and Jane Slaughter. Um, but one of the quotes that I think is really the most, hopefully, Hopefully, you know, the most indicative of where the union is going to go under the new leadership is uh, Sean Fain mentioned that back in the 40s and 50s, union leaders in the UAW were talking about 32-hour work weeks. Mm. And in 2021 and 2022, we're negotiating 
seven day weeks and 12 hour days. Wow. So, you know, that is he didn't explicitly say, you know, we're going to be we're going to be gunning for um, we're going to be gunning for 32 hour weeks. But the comparison there is, I think, intentional and and a good one. Um, And it's something that we should be, you know, we should be moving on the offensive, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the first offense offensive, I guess, is to win back the 40 hour work week, you know, since so many working people in America uh, no longer have a 40 hour work week. Uh, everybody should have a 40 hour work week. Shouldn't have to work more than that. Uh, eight hours for work, eight hours for play and or eight hours for work, eight hours for rest and eight hours for what you will. Um, that is, you know, I think that's incredibly important. And I think that, you know, frankly, folks should have more than that. And, you know, a 32 hour week is is really where we need to be heading. But I guess the first stop on <laughs> on that road is to is to cement, you know, the 50, uh, the 40 hour work week. Um, but, you know, hope, hopefully th- there's going to be some moves towards that. Yeah, just I uh, really highly recommend the article uh, again by Louise and Jane over at Labor Notes. Um, it's a new day at the UAW, and um, yeah, they they kind of go into detail with the election, and there's some good good statements there from some of the reformers who who won office or who helped put them in office, um, and even mentioned that some of the retirees mm. in closed locals, right? These are areas where uh, it's nothing but retirees because there's no active union anymore because there's no right. plant to unionize anymore. And so right. there are places like that all over the country. And uh, so you can get some sense of how the retirees were voting, at least in those circumstances. And it looks like mm-hmm. they were favorable to reform as well. Um, you know, uh, I know I was very happy to be able to tell my in-laws yesterday, like, hey, you helped make history mm-hmm. by participating in this election and by voting uh, and, and asking for change within the union. You helped make history, and that's huge. Uh, mm-hmm. We need a strong UAW in this country. It's important for the entire labor movement that UAW be at its best. Uh, UAW at its best helped labor be at its best. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the 1930s and 40s, and that's obviously a time when we were much stronger as a labor movement in this country. And a lot of that can be, you know, point, you can point back to the strong UAW. So I, uh, you know, I hope that this bodes very well, and uh, I know there was, you know, low turnout in some of it, and I think uh, Fain has already kind of pointed to that as maybe there's there's room for improvement, right? right. Obviously, there are people who are disengaged, uh, who are maybe burnt out or are disenchanted, and uh, you know, the union has work to do to rebuild confidence. Uh, but I really uh, I'm excited to know that uh, there's there's a new energy within the UAW and I hope it bodes well. And I hope uh, that means more and more members from the rank and file getting engaged to uh, you know reclaim their union and make it a strong fighting UAW that we all need. Yes. Um, and, you know, there was some uh, very little conversation on Twitter uh, started by Maddie Glacius about uh, and he said, quote, so wait, did the UAW successfully organize a bunch of graduate students whose influx then led to leadership's ouster in favor of a new, more militant group? Um, and that is definitely something that, you know, the the old guard would be pushing, but uh, graduate workers only made up 
like 3% of Sean Fain's vote. Uh, right. There were several locals in traditional UAW strongholds and manufacturing that were uh, very, very supportive of the reform group. And Hamilton Nolan from In These Times said, if you say, wait, did this happen? And then find out the actual answer, which is no, you're a reporter and you make $60,000 a year. If you say, wait, did this happen? And then just stop there, you're a pundit and you make a million dollars a year. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which I thought was a very, uh, a very um, depressingly true tweet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can always count on Iglesias to come up with something bogus. Uh, that'll get some clicks. Yep. Uh, so... Uh, Mel Sutton in the chat said that there are, you know, um, going back to USW stuff. And is there anything else that you that you wanted no, to say about I the just, UAW? Yeah, I think that's it. I just wanted to really, uh, you know, put that on folks' radar. Uh, something we'll probably dive into more in detail later. But uh, you know, that is a groundbreaking election, and that mm-hmm. could really uh, could change things. And and those kind of reform efforts are gaining ground elsewhere. They've already, uh, you know, had success with the Teamsters, with new president Sean O'Brien. So, you know, keep your eyes on UFCW and maybe mm. reform efforts within that union as well. But, uh, yeah, I just, you know, want to put that on folks' radar. There's change coming with the UAW, and that could really uh, forebode change within labor as a whole. Um yeah. And then I have a, a couple of plugs before we wrap up, but uh, you said you have some, some reporting from Mel. Yeah, he said uh, three Alabama paper mills owned by International Paper are voting on a new four-year master mill agreement uh, covered by the steelworkers this month. So oh. we'll see. Uh, I'm probably going to uh, link up with Mel sometime this week and maybe see if we can get some articles on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, website. Mel, for keeping us yeah. posted on that. Absolutely. And I owe Mel a call anyway. Um, so We'll call Mel uh, yeah. for sure. <laughs> and yeah, thank you, Mel, for, for that uh, report. And uh, that's a good time for me to say anytime those of you listening know of labor stuff mm. happening in the South in particular. But we love to hear about, you know, like infinite content keeps us posted on Philly. What's going on in oh, Philly? Yeah. Like, I don't and, know what's happening in Philly unless, right. uh, you know, unless I happen to see it. But you know, we rely on, on y'all to uh, to help us out. So as y'all come across stories that you think are worth us investigating or worth us talking about, uh, definitely send them our way. Um, Speaking of infinite content, he sent us a More Perfect Union tweet during the show this morning that's uh, s- s- uh, from The Guardian saying, New data shows the soil of East Palestine contains dioxin levels hundreds of times greater than the exposure threshold that constitutes a serious cancer risk. Wow. I'm not yeah. surprised, but um, ugh. thank not you, good. Infinite Content, for sharing that. As depressing as it is, uh, and unsurprising as it is, but yeah, yeah. So let's. Uh, I have to get out of here because I am helping a soon-to-be sister-in-law move. So let's go ahead and uh, give us those plugs, Adam, and then we'll go ahead and roll out. Yeah. So uh, we ran through the plugs real quick at the end of the main show. Uh, I did want to make sure folks heard that Alabamians for Fair Justice is holding a lobby day on April 4th to advocate around several important criminal justice bills. Uh, And if you will just Google that, register online, the sooner the better so they can plan accordingly. I saw from one of the activists that, you know, if there's enough interest, they might be able to get a bus from Huntsville to go down to Montgomery. 
Um, Labor Notes is hosting a series of online trainings as they do every month. Uh, communicating with members is the stewards workshop this week on Thursday evening. That should be a good one. Uh, they also have a webinar called Mighty Gay Unions, Queer and Trans Labor Histories and Futures on March 22nd. Uh, that is probably going to be really interesting. And uh, if you missed it, Shop Talk aired this Thursday. Shop Talk is our new weekly series that's coming out every Thursday morning. Uh, I believe we've kind of settled on 930. Just that's when we start our Saturday show. So that's probably where we're going to start our uh, our Thursday show as well. But Shop Talk is dedicated to labor education, history, and training. Uh, that way, our news and commentary, we'll, we'll keep that more on Saturdays, stick the uh, educational content more on Thursday mornings. So uh, we've only done two episodes so far. I really appreciate those of you who've tuned in so far and, and given me some feedback. Uh, the first episode was, you know, an introduction to some March anniversaries, but uh, was really headlined by a, a, a segment on the Walker County 1979 teacher strike, the first teacher strike in Alabama that I know of. And uh, if you missed that, of course, it's available online. Uh, this week, we talked with Joe Demanuel Hall from Labor Notes to just kind of go deeper on what are some of the resources they have available for training. Uh, talked about the Stewards Corner in their magazine and uh, the resources they have online. So uh, particularly if you are a steward, if you're interested in being involved as a steward or, or kind of stepping up your role in the union, uh, check that out. We've got some uh, future episodes planned around learning the legislature. You know, how does it actually work in Alabama? Like, you know, something is an idea. How does it become a bill? How does that bill move forward? How can you monitor that as just a rank and file citizen? All right. So we've got uh, that slated. Uh, I'm talking with the Labor and Working Class History Association, as well as the Southern Labor Studies Association. Uh, so we got some great stuff planned for Shop Talk every Thursday morning at 930 a.m. Uh, or, of course, you can check it on podcast a few days later. And um, if you're not on our email list already at tvlr.fm, definitely sign up for that to stay up to date on the Valley Labor Report and our work to highlight the labor movement across the Tennessee Valley and across the South. And uh, with that, I think that's everything I had. Uh, just thank you to everyone who's uh, tuned in this morning, who's liked and shared and subscribed. Uh Keep it up. We really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, that's one of the ways you can help this show is by telling folks about it, spreading the word, sharing it on social media. doesn't cost anything, but it goes a long way for us. And we really appreciate it. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all.